This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome everybody. Great to have you with us for another broadcast. I don't know if you actually watched the inaugural address that had almost no one there. It's kind of funny because no one was there. You had all these flags out and you had all this social distancing, but let's face it, this is a guy who couldn't draw 25 people to a campaign event. Joe Biden, I mean, the new president. He couldn't draw 25 people to a campaign event. How awful would it have been for the left to have held a gigantic inauguration celebration and then nobody showed up? So they had to make it all about the pandemic. Oh, we're socially distancing. Oh, we can't have the public. We have to have 65,000 national guard out because of those horrible domestic terrorists on the right. Oh, okay. Unity, though. Unity, unity, unity. That was basically the theme that Joe Biden pushed again and again and again in his inaugural address. And it was very lackluster. It was, there was no spiritedness to it at all. It wasn't upbeat. It wasn't inspiring. There was no good language. It was was like someone, I don't know, some out of work copywriter at NBC said, "Ah, give me 10 minutes. I'll throw something together. That's what this speech sounded like to me. And I also saw it as a great exercise in gaslighting, in absolute gaslighting. This idea that you tell people after the fact what actually was going on. And then you're sitting there thinking that's that's not what happened. That's not actually what happened. He alternatively went between calling for unity and slamming all of his political enemies at the same time. That's really bizarre, isn't it? And a little deranged. So I'm not going to play much of this inaugural address, but I'll play a little bit of it. Let's listen to this unity call from Joe Biden. This is cut one. Our history has been a constant struggle between the American ideal that we're all are created equal and the harsh, ugly reality that racism, nativism, fear, demonization have long torn us apart. The battle is perennial, and victory is never assured. Through Civil War, the Great Depression, World War, 9-11, through struggle, sacrifice, and setbacks, our better angels have always prevailed. In each of these moments, enough of us, enough of us, have come together to carry all of us forward. And we can do that now. History, faith, and reason show the way, the way of unity. We can see each other not as adversaries, but as neighbors. We can treat each other with dignity and respect. We can join forces, stop the shouting, and lower the temperature. For without unity, There is no peace, only bitterness and fury. No progress, only exhausting outrage. No nation, only a state of chaos. This is our historic moment of crisis and challenge. And unity is the path forward. 
All right, put aside for a moment what the left means by unity. What they mean by unity is not what you and I believe, but unity is. Unity is coming together as Americans under the same set of ideals, under the same principles that have been foundational to our republic from the very beginning. We're, we're past that now. We're past that. I believe we're in a post-constitutional phase. We're not. Those people who are still patriotic Americans who love the United States as it was handed down to us and are desperate to preserve it. We haven't moved. These people have moved. These people are radical leftists and they don't want America as it has been handed down to us. They want to morph it, fundamentally transform it, as it were, into a country that you will not recognize. And for him to stand up there and to talk about racism and nativism and demonization, who do you think he's insulting there? Do you think he's insulting his base? And when he's talking about bitterness and fury and exhausting outrage and a state of chaos, do you think he's referencing the Black Lives Matter and Antifa leftists who looted and rioted and burned down businesses and killed a Trump supporter in Portland and killed black business owners and a black police officer, a retired police officer in St. Louis, David Dorn. You think he's talking about those people, his base? You go to Antifa.com and do you know where it takes you? If you click on that link, it takes you to WhiteHouse.gov. What more do you need to know about these people? Unity means submission to them. And that's it. You go along with the plan or else. And we've already seen from big tech what they will do to you if you do not go along with them. They will flag your tweets and then they'll suspend you and then they'll get rid of your account altogether if you're the president of the United States. Hey, it's, it's only the president of the United States. He's a violent insurrectionist inspirer. Let's impeach him again. Hey, now that he's gone out of office, maybe we can impeach him again. Uh, If we have an impeachment trial and it doesn't actually do what we want it to do, because why wouldn't you impeach someone who's gone and isn't the president anymore? But after that, maybe you could just impeach him every two weeks to make sure that nobody has any good memories of Donald Trump as president. Not going to work. And I am insulted by this insinuation that he thinks we can wipe out what happened over the last four years and suddenly get on the unity train. You think we're stupid? I would love unity, but I want unity under the Constitution and those ideals and those principles, under liberty and under individual freedom and freedom of religion, all of the amendments, the Bill of Rights. That's the kind of country I want. I want the country I grew up in, but the country I grew up in is not here anymore because we've got... New people who've come along who are radicals. And that's it. The radicals have taken over. And now they're in charge in Washington. And that's what we're all going to have to live with for the next four years. Now, let, let me go to the next thing. Don't worry about him undoing everything good that President Trump did, even though he signed these executive actions, you know, putting us back in the Paris Climate Accord and, and getting rid of the so-called Muslim ban, which is just really, as we've discussed, an order that would protect the national security of the United States from terror-linked countries and, and a host of other things. He's just spending all of his time putting into place Obama's third term. That's all it is. And it's going to be Obama off the rails third term. But let's listen to a little bit more of President Biden. This is cut two. Here we stand across the Potomac from Arlington Cemetery, where heroes who gave the last full measure of devotion rest in eternal peace. And here we stand, just days after a riotous mob thought they could use violence to silence the will of the people, to stop the work of our democracy, 
to drive us from this sacred ground. It did not happen. It will never happen. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. Not ever. To all those who supported our campaign, I'm humbled by the faith you've placed in us. To all those who did not support us, let me say this. Hear me out as we move forward. Take a measure of me and my heart. If you still disagree, so be it. That's democracy. That's America. The right to dissent peaceably within the guardrails of our republic is perhaps this nation's greatest strength. Yet hear me clearly. Disagreement must not lead to disunion. And I pledge this to you. I will be a president for all Americans. All Americans. And I promise you, I will fight as hard for those who did not support me as for those who did. Sure you will. Yeah, was that sarcasm? Yeah, it was sarcasm. Sure you will. Especially when you sign the Equality Act into law, I'm sure you're going to be totally on the side of the Christians across America who will be decimated by that law. Oh, yeah, you care about them a lot. You care about them a lot. Oh, and by the way, somebody had tweeted this out that under the guise of wiping out QAnon and insurrectionists, MSNBC's Ben Rhodes and Nicole Wallace demanded the shaming and removal of conservative media and that Americans on the right should be banned from speaking unless they speak, quote unquote, truth. This is from Curtis Houck from Newsbusters. Oh, that's nice. So those on the far left are now saying get rid of conservative media. I think you pretty much already did, MSNBC. How much conservative media is left in this country of any size and scope? There's more to come on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, and in January, we are honoring the preborn and the more than 60 million babies whose lives have been tragically ended through abortion. The Ministry of Preborn is the direct competition to Planned Parenthood and the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. By equipping pregnancy centers with free ultrasounds, Preborn is able to meet abortion-minded women at their darkest hour and shine the light of Jesus. You see, when a young mom considering abortion walks into a preborn center, it's a divine appointment where where she encounters the love of Christ and the opportunity to meet the beautiful life growing inside of her. I feel like it was meant for me to have this faith. This is something God gave me for a reason. 80% of women in crisis choose life after meeting their baby on ultrasound. Would you please join with Preborn and Janet Meffer today to help save 350 babies? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's it's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Maybe I can just have my baby. It don't matter what nobody said. The Ministry of Preborn is seeking heroes right now who will partner with them to give the gift of life to babies in crisis. Preborn believes it is God's heart to save the preborn from the abortion genocide. Would you please join with Preborn and all of us here at Janet Mefford today to help choose life for 350 babies, all gifts 
gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes toward the cause of life. One ultrasound session costs $28 and for a gift of $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. But any gift of any amount will help. $100, $200, or even a gift of $15,000 will buy an ultrasound machine. Call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I fully admit to being worked up. I know I'm worked up. I'm passionate in general, but I am worked up. I accept that Joe Biden is the president of the United States. I'm not going to be one of those Americans who says he's not my president. You can't play that game because then the other side can say he's not my president when it's Trump. You know, factually speaking, he's the president. I'm not going to deny that, but I also don't have to be happy about it when I see exactly where this administration will take this country. It's going to be destructive to the middle class. It's going to be destructive to the economy. It's going to be putting us further down the road of censorship and totalitarianism and loss of freedom, loss of individual liberties. It's going to be putting us on the road to technocracy and to Marxist ideology. I don't want to go that way. I love my country and I love my children and I love my future ancestors, my future grandchildren. I don't want to hand down this kind of country to them, but what can I do about it? I was looking, for example, at Job 12. I actually posted an excerpt from Job 12 on my website because it's just my commentary for today, which is the word of God. I want to read it to you because it struck me when I read it that it just kind of says everything that I'm thinking about. Job, of course, had comforters who were trying to tell him why it was that God took away so much from him, his animals and his children, and you know all of the attacks that the enemy made against Job to see if he really loved the Lord for the Lord or just for the blessings that he had. And Job's response here in verse 13, starting in verse 13 of Job 12, listen to this passage. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waist cloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Now, I recognize that passage is not something you necessarily pull out of your little daily verse pile (laughs) and say, wow, this is really going to make my day great. But I think we do need to consider sometimes the passages in Scripture that are just flat out truth. God is in control. And I think that can be said very flippantly at times. Ah, don't worry about this hurricane. God's in control. And people are saying, I know God's in control, but I'm 
a little concerned because I have a house on the beach and I might not have a house after all of this. And what am I going to do? I don't think we can flippantly talk about God's sovereignty, but I think it's important not only to talk about God's sovereignty, but God's control over the affairs of men, including government. There is not a nation on earth that goes into vast and steep and quick decline like the United States without God ordaining it. It doesn't mean that he is the author of sin. Men make their own choices. Men defy the Lord. There's been rebellion since the garden. And those people are completely responsible. We are completely responsible for the way uh, in which we defy the Lord and rebel against him. But at the same time, the Lord also says, there's a calamity, didn't I send it? And so you have to keep that in mind. But what does that also communicate to you? It also communicates to you that God is above these people and that he loves us. He loves his church. You know, governments come and go, but the gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church. Christ's church will be preserved forever, not just in this life, but for eternity. We know these basic truths, but now is the time to really hold fast to them and to stay the course. I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but I don't think things are going to get better from here. I think we have to be faithful regardless of what it costs us to be faithful. I think we have to be more committed and more sold out to the Lord Jesus now than ever before. And maybe that is part of God's purpose to bring in a hostile government and maybe to test his church and say, do you really love me? You've had it really easy for a long time. You could worship publicly. You could have your churches. You could make your money. You could do what you wanted. You can neglect my word. You can take me for granted. And at some point, maybe I'm going to test you and see if you really love me. Kind of like Job. I'm not saying you're going to have all of your earthly possessions taken away from you. I don't know if it's going to happen or not. I'm not predicting it will happen. I'm just saying that sometimes the Lord tests those of us who say we love him. And sometimes those trials that the church is put through are for purification. So we shall see. But I just think we need to get our heads straight when it comes to what the Lord is doing and not forget that he is Lord And he is the only Lord and nothing is happening in the course of human events right now that is outside of his sovereign plan. So trust him. I'm not going QAnon, but if you're going to say trust the plan, the biblical plan is the one you ought to trust. And the giver of life is the one you should trust. And the one who went to the cross for you is the one you should trust. And the one who has promised to send his son back for us again is the one you should trust because he is the one who is faithful. He is the one who always keeps his promises. Got it? So a little encouragement in the midst of a difficult time. Not only that, I want to talk a little bit about the reference that President Biden made when he was talking about the pandemic. And he said, we must set aside politics and finally face this pandemic as one nation, one nation. And I promise you this, as the Bible says, weep, ye may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. We will get through this together, together. Look, folks, all my colleagues that I served with in the House and the Senate up here, we all understand the world is watching and blah, blah, blah. You don't need to hear anymore. It's boring anyway. Uh, He's only quoting a portion of Psalm 30, verse 5. The beginning of the verse says, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That, that's not a verse that you can take and apply to a nation coming together during a pandemic. That has, that's not what that verse is about. Let me quote, for example, from the commentary from Charles Spurgeon on this verse five. He says, for his anger endureth but a moment. 
David here alludes to those dispensations of God's providence, which are the chastisement ordered in his paternal government toward his erring children, such as the plague which fell upon Jerusalem for David's sins. These are but short judgments, and they are removed as soon as real penitence sues for pardon and presents the great and acceptable sacrifice. What a mercy is this. For if the Lord's wrath smoked for a long season, flesh would utterly fail before him. God puts up his rod with great readiness as soon as its work is done. He is slow to anger and swift to end it. If his temporary and fatherly anger be so severe that it has need to be short. What must be the terror of eternal wrath exercised by the judge towards his adversaries? That's a good commentary. That's a good commentary because in the context of whether or not the Lord is judging us, and I believe he is, that is something that is temporary, but it demands penitence. And first and foremost, it really demands penitence from those of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ. We have a lot to repent for, don't we? You know, our our worldliness and our covetousness and our lust and our sexual unfaithfulness and all of the other sins and the scandals we've seen in the pulpit over the last many years and and all of the sin and the terrible way that we have acted as a church that has been blessed with so much and taken him lightly and tried to make church into a game or some kind of entertainment venue. This is wrong, church. This is wrong and we took him for granted and maybe the pandemic was a further testing of the church to say, how much does public worship matter to you? Will any of you fight for it under your constitution? And some did. And I give thanks to God for those who were faithful and who fought because they understood the incredibly important battle that is necessary when your freedoms are under assault. You should fight for them. And there were wonderful churches and wonderful pastors who stood up across America against this, and we did get some victories. But I do wonder about all of those pastors and all of those Christian leaders who said instead, during the whole course of shutting down churches during the pandemic, well, you're not loving your neighbor if you open your church. Right, because there's never been sickness in the history of the world. COVID-19 is horrible, no doubt about it. But you don't need to permanently closed down the church of Jesus Christ at a time when people desperately need to hear the gospel more than ever before. And what's more, people who are vulnerable can stream it online. They can do it from home. And that's an important option for people who are shut-ins or people who are elderly and vulnerable. That's important, but there's no reason to keep younger, healthier Christians out of worshiping the Lord and gathering together as the saints as commanded by the Lord in his word. There's no reason for that. And I don't know if we passed that test during the pandemic. I don't know if we did because now we're getting worse. And I hate to be a Jeremiah here. I'm not Jeremiah. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. None of that stuff. But I'm trying to see this from a biblical perspective. I really am. I could play you multiple audio cuts from yesterday and and you would hear them. And okay, there it is. And I played a few of, of Joe Biden. But more than that, I just want to say to you, as your sister in Christ, stay the course. I was asked that on a show yesterday where I was a guest. What do you say to Christians in a moment like this? Stay the course. That's what I say. Obey Christ. Obey Christ. Be faithful to his word no matter what. Don't compromise. Don't flinch. Don't fail. And you will need the strength of the Lord in order to do it in ways that we probably can't even imagine right now. But you have to be faithful to him. 
and you have to decide now you're going to be faithful to him before it gets really, really tough because it might. And that's just being realistic. Let's honor Christ as Lord, just like he instructed us to do, no matter what's ahead. We're going to come back right after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are really inundated these days with all kinds of bizarre and terrible notions about family and sex and children. Through the work of hardcore activists, we're now expected to get on board with the idea that children can grow up with a mom or a dad, a mom and a dad, two moms, two dads, or maybe some other odd combination of adults. And it doesn't really make any difference as long as the child is safe and loved. And we're also told it doesn't matter if parents are even married because kids get over divorce. And if you're a single woman who wants a baby, just hire a surrogate or a gestational carrier and find a donor, have a kid. Everything's fine. But what about the effects of these trends on the children? Who cares about them and who speaks for them? Well, one of those people is my next guest, Katie Faust. She is founder and director of Them Before Us, which advances social policies that encourage adults to actively respect the rights of children rather than expecting children to sacrifice their fundamental rights for the sake of adult desires. And together with her colleague, Stacey Manning, Katie is out with a new book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. And Katie, welcome. It's so good to talk to you again. How are you? I'm well, Janet. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, it's great to talk to you again. This is a great question that you pose in your book. When we use this phrase, children's rights, you sometimes hear people on the left throwing that around and that might raise some eyebrows like, what, children's rights? But what are you talking about when you are referring to these fundamental rights of children? Yeah, I'm talking about the rights that you can observe through natural law that are self-evident and the kind of rights that if we protect we actually will safeguard the hearts of every children and revive our society. And so we specifically in this book are talking about children's rights to their mother and father, children's rights in the family, children's right to be known and loved by the two people responsible for their existence. And if you can do that, um, you know, we can wipe out nearly every social ill that we are facing as a country today because children who have uh, come from broken families or who have lost a relationship with their father, um, who have suffered family breakdown, those children overpopulate um, the demographics where, you know, we're seeing the biggest issues today from from poverty, child poverty, to homeless youth, to teen suicide, to teen pregnancy. Every issue that we're grappling with as a society ultimately stems from the loss of these fundamental child rights to be known and loved by both mother and father every day of their life. Well, it's a great goal, and it's obvious to me and to lots and lots of other people, but it doesn't seem to be part of the zeitgeist these days. It seems the nuclear family is really under assault, and you're just a terrible person if you think the only kind of family is a nuclear family. But can you speak to that issue of why the nuclear family just plain makes sense from the child's point of view? Because we don't hear from the children very much. That's right. Um, We don't hear from the children very much because 
for a kid to tell the story of the pain or the loss they experienced when their dad ran off with his secretary, when mom came out of the closet and left the marriage, you know, when they were created through sperm or egg donor um, and intentionally separated from one of their biological parents, if they were raised in a throuple or whatever it is, for a kid to tell the honest story about the pain and loss they experienced, that's a very expensive story to tell. Um, they're not going to experience increased family warmth as a result. They're probably going to be ostracized from society for going against the progressive narrative. So it's hard to find these stories. But that's one of the things that I think is the most important about the book is every chapter and every single issue, every alternative family structure is looked at through the lens of children's rights and what they lose to join those family structures. And then we include the actual stories and the actual voices of kids who had to live through this and how it impacted them. And honestly, I think that is what has been missing in all these conversations about marriage and family is we have failed on our side to humanize the real victims of the marriage and family debate, and that is children. And so that is what we try to do in this book is say, here's the real victims, here's their voices, look at them in the face and see what kind of loss they had to endure um, to be a part of this modern family that you're promoting. Right. Well, when you talk about the children's rights being subordinated to adult desires, why are we doing this? Why are we taking the entire concept of family and leaving out the children who are as much a part of the family as whoever is leading it? Why is it all about adult desires, do you think? Well, we worship it, right? We worship adult sexual fulfillment, adult gratification. You know, we've built entire narratives, and we've been doing this for a long time. You yeah. know, we started doing it with no-fault divorce, right? you know, where we would say, well, if the adults are happy, the kids will be happy. Well, we know that that's a lie. We've been studying children of divorce and the outcomes for them. You know, we go into detail about the outcomes of no-fault divorce on children in Chapter 5, and it is not good. I mean, there's no such thing as a good divorce. Um, you know, it impacts children's thriving for life, you know, their ability to thrive in school and get a job and form and maintain their own healthy relationships, their mental health, um, their physical health. I mean, there's all kinds of physical health drawbacks to experiencing a divorce. Um, and so, you know, we make it clear that there are certain situations where divorce may be better than staying together, uh, but that's not the majority of divorces that take place today. So we have, throughout all these different issues, prioritized adult desire, really said, if the adults want something, they should have it. Not only should they have it, but they have a right to it. I mean, so we have even used the rights language to justify adult desire And the result is kids lose their actual rights. Yeah, that's really a great point. So when we talk about the things that matter as pertaining to this debate, you talk about biology mattering. And you said this at the beginning, that a child has a right to mom and to dad. It's crazy that we even have to make that obvious point. But in what way does biology matter in the life of a child? We spend all of Chapter 2 going through the massive amounts of research on the importance of biology in the parent-child relationship. And people will often say, you know, well, biology doesn't matter. Kids just need to be safe and loved. And I say, well, then you agree with me, because the very place where children are most likely to be safe and loved is in the home of their biologically related mother and father. Right. There is something about biology that makes adults more connected to, protective of, and invested in their children. And this is the very reason why adoption agencies vet adoptive parents, because they know that there is a risk 
to placing a child with an unrelated adult, right? Right, right? And so chapter two, we go through the importance of biology in there and how it really is fundamental to child well-being. Well, that's important because you also point out that unrelated adults are less connected to the children, less invested in the children. It's not that there can never be an unrelated adult who doesn't care and love that child. But what about the abuse factor, too? Isn't it the case? You you hear some of these statistics on boyfriends living with the mom and how many times the children are either hit, abused, sexually abused or whatnot. What what is the situation regarding abuse of children just from having an unrelated adult in the home? Yeah, and I want to be very clear here that I'm not saying that all step-parents, boyfriends, girlfriends living in the home are abusive. Thank God that is not the case. Right. But when there is an unrelated adult living in the home and there's abuse that takes place, it's very often connected to the non-biologically related parent. And so, um, you know, the, the rates of abuse, neglect, and even filicide, child death, skyrocket, especially when there's an unrelated male in the home. In fact, um, if you guys are listening to this show right now and you've got a computer or a phone in front of you, just Google the words mother's boyfriend and tell me what you find. Mm -hmm. Um, You are going to see pages and pages and pages of the most horrific abuses um, and and cases of child death and neglect um, because there is something different about that. It takes more than being in a romantic relationship with a child's parent to treat that son or daughter as your own child. Um, So biology really matters when it comes to parenting, and we've ignored that for far too long. Well, that's such an important point, because if you think that you can just trade out whoever the father figure is and whoever the mother loves is going to be just as good, statistics would bear out that that's not the case. That, in fact, if you are biologically related to that child, there's a higher likelihood that you will treat that child the way a normal father would treat a, a child who is born of his own union with the mother. That's right. Um, And the statistics back it up. But not only that, the stories back it up. So we spend a lot of time sharing the stories of um, kids who lived in homes with their um, step-parent or the live-in boyfriend or girlfriend and literally saw them treating their own children differently than they were treated. So, you know, yes, the statistics have always been on our side when it comes to this. The research overwhelmingly confirms that biologically related parents care for their children differently. Yep. Hang on just a moment, Katie. We do need to run to a quick break. We'll be back with Katie Faust right after this. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. What did you pray for today? Good health, safety, maybe to meet a goal? Those are good things to pray for. But pastors and evangelists in the Middle East aren't praying for material blessings or for an end to the persecution or difficulties they face. Rather, they're praying for copies of God's Word so that believers will be spiritually nourished and strengthened to live out their faith in this challenging part of the world. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in places like the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and Latin America live each day without their very own Bible. But you can send one today. Give one Bible for only $5, 20 Bibles for $100, or 200 Bibles for $1,000. Whatever you'd like to give, you can become a Bible sender by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com.
The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not in insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Thank you for being with us. It's great to have with us Katie Faust, founder and director of Them Before Us. And that is the name of her new book with Stacey Manning. It's Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. And we are discussing the forgotten people within all these debates over family and sex and gender and all the rest. And that is the child and the children who are in these homes where all of these adults, unfortunately, are playing all kinds of new games with family. And it's not good for the kids. One of the things you also address in the book, Katie, is this matter of gender. Here we have, after the Obergefell decision, this idea foisted upon Americans who, you know, millions disagreed with this, obviously, myself included, that all of a sudden, the Supreme Court can invent a new type of marriage, a same-sex marriage, and all of a sudden, the idea is that we cannot object to the idea that two men or two women are parents in the same way that a mom and a dad are parents. Can you speak to that issue a bit? Yeah, we talk about in the book, we've got an entire chapter, number four, on why marriage matters. And we say, um, look, there's all kinds of arrangements um, that adults can put themselves in, romantic arrangements, and sometimes the state will even call those marriage. But there is only one type of relationship that a children's rights advocate will consider to be a marriage, and that is the relationship of the mother and father together for life. Because that is the only adult relationship that unites the two people to whom children have a natural right No other adult relationship can replicate that benefit for children. Um, You know, whether or not two men or two women can have the same level of emotional feeling that a man and woman have is honestly irrelevant. The reality is that marriage has been the most child-friendly institution the world has ever known because it unites the two people to whom children have a natural right. And so whatever whatever the courts say, whatever the laws say, whatever the culture is promoting, it's not ever going to be able to offer to children what traditional marriage offers children, and that is both biological parents and home raising them together. Totally right. It's interesting to see some of these court cases when you talk about legal wrangling. You see a lot of these court cases of gay activists going after Christian adoption agencies, for example, and saying that it's discriminatory not to give children to same-sex couples. And aside from the religious freedom angle on that whole question, there's also the question of what right do you have to somebody else's baby? I mean, the, the premise here is that I could, I need a baby. You need to hand me a baby and you have to do this because it's my right to have a baby. What, what do you make of that particular idea that you have a right to someone else's biological child? So we um, spend quite a bit of time. Really, we kind of deconstruct every alternative family structure. So in Chapter 7, we talk about donor conception. In Chapter 8, we talk about surrogacy. 
In Chapter 9, we talk about adoption, and we make it very clear that adoption is distinct from reproductive technologies because adoption is an institution that exists to help children in need. Nobody has a right to adopt. Nobody. I mean, I'm an adoptive mom. I don't have a right to adopt. My son, who needed a mother and father, had a right to be adopted. Okay, so adoption is not a way for adults to get kids. Adoption is a just society's response to children who have lost their parents. And so we have got to be honest about the needs of those children, not necessarily what adults want in the adoption process. Um, So I would really encourage your um, listeners to grab the book because that's a really important distinction that is really pushed by a lot on the other side, that um, if you're in support of adoption, which I think most conservatives, pro-lifers, pro-traditional marriage people are, um, it's the right response. We need to be able to say, but that's completely different from the reproductive marketplace that is now being created through, you know, sperm and egg donation and surrogacy, because a lot of people will equate the two. They'll say, well, it's just another form of adoption, right? Mm. Or if you support adoption, then you should support reproductive technologies. No, no. Adoption supports the rights of children, donor conception, reproductive technologies, surrogacy, violates the rights of children. And we need to get that question exactly right. I love the way that you just explained that, Katie. That is so perfect to make this, again, a a matter of the child's need, that a child in need of adoption, it's the child being helped. The child is finding a home. And people who want to give that child a home have to be screened and have to be vetted to make sure that that child has the best chance of being raised in an appropriate home. And that's, that's a great distinction. So let's turn a little bit to the reproductive technology angle Talk about that, because nowadays people don't think very deeply on these questions. They say, well, if you're pro-life, why wouldn't you want people to have more babies and use these technologies? But clearly there are a lot of difficult issues involved when you start using donors. And, you know, you see these horror stories in the news about a doctor who has, you know, 90 children or these kinds of horror stories that make people go, well, wait a minute, maybe this isn't such a good idea. Why isn't it? Yeah, it is not a good idea um, because what it is, it is the intentional separation of a child from one or both of their biological parents, um, and that is harmful, right? So throughout history, we have, ex- we have had children who have experienced mother loss or father loss due to incredible tragedy, and typically when that takes place, um, people around the child will mourn, right? They will grieve with the child. They will remember the missing parent. But now we've got an entire new crop of children who are losing a parent, but not because of tragedy, but because of intentionality, right? Their parent, the person raising them, has chosen for them not to have a relationship with their other biological parent. So not only does the child then suffer and struggle with the identity issues that go along with that, um, with the household instability that often accompanies um, reproduct- people who use reproductive technologies with the longing to know their missing parent, with the longing to know perhaps there are hundreds of half-siblings yeah. out there. Yeah. The kids who struggle with the fact that money changed hands during their conception, so this feeling of commodification like they are a product. Okay, so uh, the kids are struggling with all of that. And then the added pain and suffering that goes with the fact that they can't be honest about it. Because if they are, right, if they do say, wow, I'd really like to know my sperm donor dad, and if they say that to their mom, 
they're actually indicting the person who made the decision for their dad to be absent. So mm-hmm. there is a lot of repression that goes along in the donor-conceived community of feeling like they cannot be honest about how they feel, like they might upset their parent if they share some of their pain and loss. And so what we see on the few studies that have been done on the donor-conceived community is that they're affected. You know, they have disproportionately negative outcomes, even compared to kids who are adopted, who are being raised apart from both biological parents. So this is not the kind of... um, (laughs) procedure that we want to encourage because it's what it really is. It's always the adults, the, the, the people who are strong, asking the children to sacrifice for them, right? Mm-hmm. And that's unjust. We never ask children to bear the burden or to accept loss just so adults can have what they want. Yeah, you're right on the money. And also, there's this danger of turning children into commodities. I mean, how can you not think about Brave New World and the labs in which children were created? They're just, it's so dehumanizing in a way. I wanted a baby. Let me see if I can find a way to get one. That That's putting yourself first. That's not putting the child first. And obviously, it's not that every woman who wants to have a baby that way has nefarious I, you know, ideas. But at the same time, I think we're back to the same problem that you're stressing here, Katie, and that is we don't take the time in many instances to think about the child's point of view. It's only the adult's point of view. So how do you turn this around when you have this great movement that you have in progress here, then before us? How can people get involved in kind of advancing the movement of putting children's rights first? So we spend all of chapter 10 talking about joining the movement, who we are, what we're doing, how we're going to change things. And in summary, what we're going to do is a complete global takeover of all conversations around marriage and family. We want the issues of the rights of the child to be front and center in every policy decision and every personal decision. Because when you do that, the incredible thing is you arrive at the right policy conclusions every time. And you can take this lens of children's rights to their mother and father and apply it to all of these conversations we're having about marriage and family from who goes on a birth certificate to um, what should our response be to divorce to um, what is what is surrogacy? Is that is that a good thing for kids or is that a bad thing for kids? Um, the conversations about the definition of marriage. What about polygamy? What about thruples? I mean, every single issue that has to do with marriage and family, if you can look at it through the lens of children's rights, you come up with the right policy every time. And so you, your listeners should join our movement. They should come to thembeforeus.com. They should definitely order the book because it is, it is sort of the field guide for all of us children's rights advocates and this new children's rights global movement that is growing. Um, This is the answer. This is the thing that is going to equip you to have these conversations with friends, to understand the threats that are coming to your own state or your own country when it comes to redefining parenthood. Um, Everything that you need to know is in this book. Every chapter should have been its own book. (laughs) Well, I agree, Katie. It's really great. Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement is the name of the book, and you can check out thembeforeus.com. Katie Faust with us. Katie, keep up the good work. It was just great to talk to you and have you here. Thanks, Janet. You bet. Take care and God bless. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. We really appreciate your listening every day and we'll see you next time. This hour has been brought to you by Preborn. Help us save 350 babies' lives by the end of January through a gift of one free ultrasound. $28 saves one life. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com.